Oh no, have some quiet please. Have some quiet. Settle down. Settle down. Settle down. Settle down! Thank you. Uh, now, uh, on this uh, auspicacious, uh, uh, on the uh, uh, on the auspicious, uh, um, on this bloody great big occasion, I I'd just like to say uh, just one or two words. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm not allowed to, so I'll say some other ones. Uh, congratulations, Trev, uh, to you. Uh, Trev's 21 today, of course, and uh, I think I probably uh, go uh, carry all your wishes uh, and agreeing 100% uh, uh, to go along with me uh, on that particular one. Now, uh, now. Um, Trev, uh, it wasn't always easy, was it, son? And uh, now Trev knows this, uh, and Trev's uh, father knows this, uh, Trev's brothers know this, and of course uh, Trev's mother knows this, as a matter of fact, to her cost. Uh, would somebody please take uh, Mrs Bayliss out of the wool press? Thanks. Uh, he was, of course, uh, a source uh, of enormous pride uh, to his enormous, uh, to, uh, to uh, his mother, of course, and uh, to a lesser degree, of course, to myself. And uh, I think I probably... Uh, You'll probably agree with me 100% uh, in going along with me wholeheartedly, I probably, and uh, I think I carry with us uh, the wishes of all myself in going along uh, with us all in joining with me on that particular one. Um, now, uh, there is uh, a ton of comestibles out the back. Uh, the place is fair groaning with them, and uh, there's uh, a fair few acres of sludge. And uh, at the present point in time, it's my uh, desire that you tear into it. Um, suffice it to say, uh, in conclusion and finally, uh, that I should conclude by um, actually finally pointing out that Trev's uh, gone from strength to strength. Uh, strength to strength is uh, more or less what Trev's gone uh, from and to. And uh, suffice it to say, at the present point in time, uh, that uh, the very best of luck, Trev. The very best of luck, my boy, uh, in all you do. So uh, it's good luck, Trev, and uh, the very best of luck to you, uh, Trev, and uh, jolly good luck. Uh, all the best, uh, um, good luck, and uh, I probably think that uh, you'll all here uh, agree with me more or less 100% uh, in going along with me, uh, in joining with myself uh, in going along with uh, Trev's mother and I, as a matter of fact, uh, in uh, joining myself in, in concurring probably uh, with that view on that particular one. <sighs> good luck, Trev. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Speakola with Tony Wilson. Welcome to another edition of the Speakola podcast. I am Tony Wilson and a bit of a bittersweet opening this week with the voice of Fred Dagg, aka the dearly departed John Clark, loved in this country for his satirical genius, his comic rhythm, comestibles has never been used better in a sentence. What a loss he was when he died in March of 2017. And we're going to explore the life of John Clark today because the feature speech is Andrew Denton's eulogy to John Clark, both legends of Australian entertainment. And this is a wonderful few minutes of oratory. John Clark's life on our screens and radios may have begun with Fred Dagg, but 
It certainly didn't end there. He was the creator of Farnarkling with the Gillies Report. With Brian Dore, his non-parody parody interviews became an institution. He wrote The Games with Ross Stevenson, a searing insight into bureaucratic bungling and compromise in advance of Australia's biggest ever sporting event. He wrote prolifically and variously and brilliantly, and he was a hero to me and so many others. Indeed, when I was embarking upon the Speakola project, I contacted John Clark and asked him if he had a speech for me that I could put up in those early days of the website. And he said he didn't mind if I put up the apology he wrote for John Howard, the actor, to deliver on the Games at a time when the Prime Minister of Australia, also called John Howard, was refusing to deliver an apology. And it's a beautiful piece of writing and exactly how the apology might have sounded at the time. He also suggested some speeches to me. He wrote me an email and said to put up Elaine May's tribute to Mike Nichols at the AFI Awards, which is just such a funny speech, referring to Mike Nichols' blood relationship with Einstein. And he also suggested Brian Eno's speech, the John Peel lecture for the BBC about art and the nature of art and why we need art and why art needs to be supported by society. And it's as good a speech as you'll ever read or hear. John Clark's generosity of creative spirit was something that many Australian writers and performers experienced, and certainly that's something we'll touch on in our special interview today, which, as I said, is with another legend of Australian entertainment. Andrew Denton has been on our screens since the 1980s. He began with a series called The Money or the Gun. He then had the hit sports comedy panel show Live and Sweaty, There was the Denton interview show in the mid-90s, and perhaps most famously, Enough Rope, the interview show that ran between 2003 and 2008, which was such a success and made Denton the most notable interviewer in the country. In the last decade, he's been a little bit more behind the scenes as an executive producer, but on the national stage, he's been at the forefront of a campaign to change the assisted dying laws in this country. He's a director and founder of Go Gentle Australia, and his beautiful speech at the National Press Club in Canberra is an incredible piece that we do have up on Speakola and is definitely worth checking out. When Andrew agreed to coming on the Speakola podcast, I thought he might talk about one of his assisted dying speeches that have been many gems over the last few years. But Andrew himself wanted to talk about this eulogy to John Clark, his friend, his mentor, and a hero to both of us. Well, I'm pretty excited for this episode of the Speakola podcast because we've got a great of Australian television, a man we've all been watching on our screens for several decades now. And usually he's the interviewer, but today he's turned interviewee. And it's a great pleasure to welcome Andrew Denton. Thanks for joining me, Andrew. Tony, a real pleasure. Well, before we get to your feature speech, Andrew, can you tell us a bit about becoming a speaker, becoming adept with words? Were you, were you, always, were you on the debating team at school? Uh, yes, I certainly was. 
uh, I came from a very wordy house. My father was a writer and word games were big in our house and much to the horror of my family, I'm a, a constant uh, purveyor of puns, which, as we know, are the lowest form of shit, sorry, wit. And um, I was on the school debating team and I had a seminal moment. I was at a very, <laughs> very pokey, almost hillbilly private school in the Blue Mountains and we went down to the mighty King's School in Sydney and I was doing a debate and in those days you had your debate written out in dot point form on little palm cards and um, so I had all my palm cards in my hand and then I dropped them. I don't know, it was a minute or two into the debate and so I had a choice which was, you know, the horror of having to pick them up and and rearrange them and, and just make a fool of myself or just push blindly on so I did the latter and I worked out after that it was much better without palm cards uh, to learn stuff and then learn it well enough that you could extemporize on top of that. What was the topic of that debate? Do you remember that? Uh, I have absolutely no idea. You know, it was, it was your usual school debate subject, which is, you know, the shoes would be better worn on your head or something like that. Well, I asked you to pick a feature speech and I thought you might go in the direction of some of the amazing speeches you've delivered on assisted dying and in particular one that we have up on Speakola from the, the National Press Club in 2016, which is just a 40-minute a epic. And um, for any debater out there who wants to canvas every argument on euthanasia, that really is the speech to go to. Oh, thank you. That was, um, that was both a labour of love and an enormous labour. I, I don't know that I've ever worked harder on a speech than that because it was, um, it was actually the launch of an entire organisation and a a significant campaign which continues to this day. Well, we could have featured that speech or indeed many others you've delivered in an incredible media career. But in the end, Andrew, you've decided to talk about your eulogy to John Clark. Um, he died on the 9th of April 2017. It was just a, a tragedy for all of us who love entertainment and comedy and words. And, um, and I gather you two were great friends. Look, I don't know if John would have called me a great friend. We're certainly friends, and I uh, had a great warmth to towards John because he lived in Melbourne and me in Sydney, and because John hated flying. We didn't see each other that often, but it was one of those great friendships where it didn't matter the, the distance between us or the space of time. The conversation just picked up very easily. John, uh, look, it's a real pleasure to talk about John, and thank you for sending me an audio file of that speech, which I didn't have. Because listening back to it, what I hear is some stumbles. Uh, you know, it, it was part of a beautiful night of eulogising of John or people from right across the Australian entertainment industry in Australia and New Zealand spoke and, and everyone spoke, you know, really well. But for me, it was hard to put into words in just five or six minutes what John meant to me. And um, so listening back to the speech, what I heard were stumbles, but I also heard a very heartfelt speech. It's, it's a beautiful speech, and we are going to play it at the end, um, which is the format of this podcast where we talk about the speech and then play the speech. But I thought you might talk a bit about how you first met John Clark. What, what was the first time you ever heard his voice? Well, I, I had... Uh, not exactly growing up, but certainly in my teenage years, listened to John, you know, when he came over as Fred Dagg from New Zealand and just loved his delivery, loved his skill with words. I remember listening to one in particular talking about real estate and it was just such a brilliant construction. 
Uh, yeah, g'day. Now, when it comes to being a real estate agent, uh, one or two vital points, of course, firstly, in Australia, anybody can become a real estate agent. In fact, you may have noticed, uh, pretty well anyone is. Um, if you intend to be a real estate agent, uh, bear in mind the following. Uh, basically, the function of the real estate agent is to add to the price of the article without actually producing anything. This is done in two ways. Uh, firstly, there is the physical appearance. You'll have to acquire that in your own time. I won't bore you with the details. Suffice it to say, though, that if you've got gold teeth and laugh lines around your pockets, then you're through to the semis without dropping a set. <laughs> the rest of it's basically got to do with communication, terminology, uh, and calling a spade a delightfully bucolic colonial winner facing north and offering a unique opportunity to the handyman. <laughs> the vernacular basically falls into three categories. There are three types of house. Uh, glorious, commanding, majestic, split-level, ultra-modern dream homes, which are built on cliff faces. Uh, private, bush-clad nooks, which are built down holes. Uh, and very affordable, solid family residences in much sought-after areas, which are, of course, old gun emplacements with awnings. <laughs> a cottage is a caravan with the wheels taken off. A panoramic, spectacular or breathtaking view is a clear indication uh, that the house has windows. Although, of course, uh, if the view is unique, uh, then there's probably only the one window. Um, so John, to me, was on a, not just on another level. He was about five levels up from even where I aspired to be. And how I met him was on the phone. And it was a, it's a beautiful story, which is very, very typical of John. And I found out in the years afterwards that he had done similar things for other people in the entertainment industry, Mick Malloy, for example. So it was the end of my second year working at the ABC, and I'd just finished the first series of The Money or the Gun, which was a fairly experimental format, a kind of bent series of documentaries. And the ABC are absolutely brilliant at giving you opportunities. And I don't have to underline their importance to Australian culture and, and to Australia's national conversation. However, what they're not good at is telling their employees whether or not they're doing a good job. So at the end of that first year, I'd really heard nothing from management or anyone. And I just assumed, well, uh, that obviously didn't work. And that's a pity. I thought some of it was good, but, oh, it didn't work. And I was sitting in my little bit of carpet, carpeted office at the ABC and my cubicle, and it was an old-fashioned landline phone. And around this time I was thinking that, the phone rang and there was this voice that was so familiar to me. Uh, G'day, Andrew, John Clark here. And I was like, oh, hi, John. Uh, it's really nice to meet you. And he said, round about now you're probably thinking that uh, you haven't done a very good job because nobody's told you. So I'm just ringing to say you did a really good job. <laughs> and <laughs> it, was, it was extraordinary and it was a beautiful thing to do. He didn't, we'd never met, he didn't know me, and, but he went to the effort and it meant a great deal to me not just in the absence of um, more formal recognition, but because he was a man I admired uh, in Australia, certainly ahead of all others. Well, Andrew, I can say that something pretty similar happened to me. I interviewed John Clark when, um, for Popcorn Taxi when the Shane huh. Maloney adaptations of The Brush Off and, and Stiff were coming out. Yep. And, of course, being a 20-year fan of John Clark's, so I... I desperately palmed across my first novel players to him, and you think, oh well, that that'll just go in his uh, slush pile of of <laughs> things he receives from fans. And then five or six weeks later, he sent me an email and said what he liked about it and what was funny, and it was just a you know just a treasured thing that people don't do. It was it was just lovely. 
Oh, look, and, you know, John was a true mentor to lots of people. As I said, I've, I've heard similar stories to mine from uh, other people in the entertainment industry. What I loved about John was, you know, I only found this out by accident. You get into a conversation. There was absolutely nothing forward-facing about his mentoring. It was always private. It was always between you and he. And um, he was a very classy man in that regard. He had all the talents under the sun, but he never felt the need to show off. It always struck me as, you know, the mark of his intelligence was that he left New Zealand because he got too famous there for his own comfort. He needed yeah. to come somewhere where he could work more quietly. When did you find out he died? He died at 68 in the Grampians. How did you find out? I, as is my habit, was flicking through online newspapers and I saw it uh, on the Sydney Morning Herald site prominently featured. And I still, even as I'm saying it now, I can feel my sense of dismay but also disbelief. I actually stopped and thought I'd misread it because, it, you know, John wasn't one of those people that was going to go and die. <laughs> you know, John was John. John was uh, a monolith. He was bedrock. And uh, there it was. I uh, I was so... Uh, stunned the first person I could think to ring was Andrew Knight who I'd uh, worked with and loved working with on a series called 30 Seconds and we often used to talk about John and I hope Andrew doesn't mind me giving away this confidence he was actually in LA and Andrew is a very I don't know if you've met Andrew he's not only a beautiful writer he's a lovely man and he's got this really beautiful diffident way of talking droll and um uh, it's always a delight chatting with Andrew. and But the Andrew that answered the phone was inconsolable. He was just sobbing. And mm-hmm. and that uh, threw me even more. So it was, as I say, even talking about it now, I, f- I can feel my my heart agitating. It was, it was very, very shocking. The public memorial, the celebration of John Clark, which was this incredible three-hour event, and, and you've mentioned it, that, people like Kaz Cook and Paul Kelly and Wendy Harmer and Sam Neill and others are all at this event. Uh, was there a was there a more personal funeral that you attended in the in the 3 months before that one? No, I didn't go to uh, the family funeral service, but I did uh, courtesy of Brian Dore, he directed me to the where John was buried and um, it's a beautiful spot. And when I went there, there was uh, it was only a couple of weeks later. His his grave was uh, was marked only by flowers and by a teapot, which I thought was um, was lovely. It was uh, kind of loony guess, but also very John Clark. It, it just spoke to the the straight up and down values that John had. In terms of the speech itself, so you're obviously asked to deliver five or ten minutes. Can you tell us what the request was and what your understanding of the requirement was for the speech? To talk about John and to keep it to about five. And the challenges I saw it was I didn't want, even though I I had worked with John in in a couple of different ways and uh, had some, you know, some good stories about. John, I didn't actually want to make it about my relationship with John. I wanted to keep the focus very much on him 
and what I had seen in him. Now, some of it was clearly personal. Obviously, the poem he sent me after my father died, that was very personal. But I wanted to, I thought for a long time, what is it that I most admire about John, beyond the, the skill and the craft, both of which were so evident, beyond the fact that, as I think I said in the speech, I, I believe then, as I believe now, that for many years John was the finest satirist on the planet. Um, his decision to impersonate people by not impersonating them at all so that all you listened to was the logic or lack thereof of their words was so, you know, seditious and superb. So um, I remember how did I pull the speech together? I think I, I just walked around a lot and thought, what are the moments for John? What are the things? What's the, what's at the heart of how I feel about John? And the, and the two deepest truths for me were, as I said, his ability to be such a, a potent satirist for so long and to hold that white-hot kernel of anger close to him without being burnt. A lot of people I know uh, who've worked in comedy and who do work in comedy, and even though I, it's a long time since I've worked in that field, I would count myself guilty as the same sin, can bend to anger and can and can bend out of shape because of anger. And John was not like that. Uh, it's not that he was without anger, but he he governed it, which is a, a, a great quality. You know, not many people can. We revere Nelson Mandela because he did that. And the other truth for me was that, and I've only realised this more in the years since. Um, you know, I, was, I was not that long ago listening to John's beautiful double CD of his uh, when he hosted ABC FM uh, Classics, and it was such a, a stunning piece of thinking and delivery that they released it as a CD on its own. And it's only in the years since that I've realised um, just how much John meant to me, that he was in some ways, even though we didn't spend, I, I don't know if you added up all the hours we spent together, it wouldn't be in the hundreds, but he was in some ways, and certainly in a professional way, like a father figure to me, he, my father, my own father worked in the entertainment industry, but as is often the case with fathers and sons, found it difficult, I think, to give unconditional approval for what I was doing, but, but John did. John did it in very, very quiet ways. I remember... We both went to the premiere of, <laughs> unlikely for both of us to be the premiere of something, but it was out of friendship to Ben Elton. We went to the premiere of We Will Rock You in Melbourne. Oh. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not one for those kind of rooms and I suspect John isn't either, but there we were. And, and suddenly out of, the, out of the press of people, John emerged. And it was the first year of uh, Enough Rope, which had turned out to be very successful against everybody's expectations and John just came up to me and, and said in that John way uh, well that worked didn't it <laughs> and just gave me a big <laughs> smile and, uh, and that's all he needed to say and um, uh, and I'm sure I speak for a lot of people in the entertainment industry in this country when I say to know that John was in your corner not just because he had a good heart but because he had that superb eye and that crystal ear that meant plenty because um there was no one with a better eye or better ear that's true although i'd put ben elton up there with him except not with we will rock you that was uh, seemingly his one blind <laughs> spot over a couple of decades 
Look, I think it was I think it was Socrates who once wrote that uh, no work of art based around a song called Fat Bottom Girl shall ever prosper. <laughs> That's right. Well, you used um, the beautiful Plutarch quote, um, he who governs anger governs himself. I've viewed John's life somewhat vicariously through um, being a Facebook friend and a Triple R broadcasting friend of his daughter, Lauren Clark. And there just seems to be, there was this endless supply of kind of gentle wonderment with the world, um, and yet with all that Mm. subversive and and original thought. And so when you talked about just the the Frisbee story, and I, don't, I won't give it all away, but Frisbee seemed to feature a lot for him as well as birds and, um, yep. you know, it's just this sort of, this love of the world and as you, you say, sort of a, and the lack of anger, yeah. Or the, 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 the containment of anger and the direction of anger um, where it would do good, not harm. And, you know, I, I refer to some of his philosophy of satire in the speech and, if you listen to it, you'll understand what that means. Look, wonderment is a great word to use for John. I remember going to his office um, once uh, just to catch up. We went out to lunch afterwards. And one of the things he had in his walls were this series of maps, which were unfinished maps, you know, kind of here be monsters maps. And some were yeah. Australian. And I thought that that was very John, you know, as in undiscovered territory. And I remember once he just sent me a CD of some Samuel Beckett interviews and that was him too i'm just nourishing other people he was a massive connoisseur and consumer of art wasn't he like whether it was classical music or poetry or theater or comedy or satire and and just back back into the past as well he was just knew everything (laughs) he loved he loved beckett in particular i think he saw beckett as i saw john which was at an unattainable other level I remember reading John Clark's, I always misremember the title, I think it was The Complete Book of Australian Poetry, yeah. where he Australianises all these famous poets. And he did, to my mind, the, the absolutely impossible. Uh, he took an Edward Lear nonsense limerick and made nonsense of a nonsense limerick. <laughs> I remember thinking, how could you even do that? Who even thinks of that? <laughs> <laughs> and the tournament as well is such a, a wild yes. idea of, of the philosophers playing tennis for 400 yeah. pages or whatever it was. Um, yeah, <laughs> he, he was incredible. Uh, and and you also, I mean, you started the speech with this, that he, he had the, um, and it was a beautiful phrase you used as well, the keenest of eyes but also the finest of hearing and his hearing was finely tuned not just to the cant of the powerful but to the nuance of the punter. That's wonderful. Had you, how closely written was the speech, Andrew? Was that sort of line fully formed or were you a little bit on your feet? I think it was probably fully formed. I wanted to do, John, the, the service of having my words in good shape and I wanted to say him as I saw him and say it right. And with that, I was saying that he was a man that, that spoke not just truth but absurdity to power, but who also was very, very grounded. Uh, one of my loveliest memories of John, he did love golf, he loved sport. And, in fact, I once did just go and throw a frisbee in a park with him and Lauren when she was little, uh, which was lovely. I've always been a lover of frisbees. They're so simple <laughs> and it's such a childish <laughs> thing, childlike thing to do. But uh, we, John and I played golf once. He teed off. He was a right-hander and he <laughs> He just 
he must have lifted his head at the last minute and the ball sliced almost at 90 degrees straight into some bushes to the right of the tee. It couldn't have come up with the worst tee shot. So I stepped up thinking I might have one up on John here and um, I'm a left-hander and I did exactly the same shot but to the left-hand side of the tee. <laughs> and uh, we just couldn't speak for laughing. Uh, we were just such a, a preposterous display of incapacity. <laughs> <laughs> We've golf featured through quite a few of the speeches at the celebration night for his life, and you, everyone should really listen to the Wheeler Centre recording. It's still online, all three hours. But golf is it true he once played golf with Peter Cook? Did you ever hear that story? Yes, he did, and I heard a. Um, I don't know. Well, you can decide whether or not to keep this story in. But John told me, uh, and this is really a Peter Cook story, <laughs> that he came back from that golf game with Peter Cook to the then what was then known as the Rockman's Regency Hotel in, in Melbourne. And the the then owner of the Rockman's Regency Hotel, Irving Rockman, spied the star guest, Peter Cook, and shot across the foyer and introduced himself to Peter Cook with John standing there and said, oh, Mr Cook, my name's Irving Rockman. I'm the proprietor of this Rockman's Regency Hotel. It's, it's a delight to have you here. And uh, if there's any way we can help you, please, please let us know. And, and if... You know, if you should feel that you can or have the opportunity to at any time mention Rockman's Regency Hotel in any of your publicity while you're here, I'd be very grateful. And Peter Cook looked at him and said, well, I thank you so much for having me here. It's delightful and I would be, uh, of course, uh, very happy to mention uh, Rockman's Regency Hotel if uh, if you would suck my cock. <laughs> and there was this, <laughs> this stunned silence at which point... Irving Rockman turned around and left. Now, I'm not sure you can actually broadcast that, Tony, but... That's the whole benefit of podcasts, isn't it? And certainly, Speakola, all speech is great and small. um, (laughs) It was a beautiful story. Um, Can I say, though, that night of the... All those speeches, that that night of the eulogies, and, and how many Australians... I mean, Paul Kelly will be another, I have no doubt, but how many Australians would get that kind of a gathering to speak for three hours to a packed a packed venue? And I think people were outside listening as well. Not many, very few, and, uh, and John deserved it. But my favourite of all those eulogies was the shortest, and I think it came right towards the end. It was from the director, Matthew Saville. And again, it was that, that small detail which told you a lot about John. So... John was going to work, I don't know what the series was, on something Matthew Saville was doing, shooting in Adelaide. John hated to fly, so he uh, drove from Melbourne to Adelaide. And when he got there, Matthew said, oh, John, glad you could make it. You're tired? And John said, no, I had a great trip. And, in fact, I stopped at, uh, I'm not, I can't remember where it was. I'm making this up now, but let's say Apollo Bay. And I just went for a bit of a, a body surf. And he said, I caught the most amazing wave. And uh, I swear, Matthew, I I probably went from about 30 metres out all the way into the shore. And it was such an amazing wave that my first instinct when I landed on the beach was to look up to the sky and think, hey, Mum and Dad, did you see that? <laughs> it's beautiful, isn't it? And he, and he, yeah. and he had that 
um, that ability to capture the warmth and the comedy in the moment and uh, and make you feel good. And yeah, and even with the satire, as you say, that sometimes you'd be saying the most powerful things and the most important things, and yet you'd come out of the few minutes feeling good and not beaten. Yeah, and he had. I mean, those interviews, I, I remember that he published a book of those interviews and I've, off, I've often gone back and read this one. I remember reading it at the time. It was first published in the Bulletin. And I was working at the ABC, so it was of interest to me, but it was just a, a lesson in how to write savagely but with great economy and without malice. And it was an interview with David Hill, then the boss of the ABC. And I haven't got this exactly right, but the gist of it is, John is obviously David Hill and Brian's asking the questions. And all it is is Brian asking David Hill what his qualifications are. So, And, and the answers are all a series of variations on the word no. So have you ever been a director? No. Have you ever been a writer? No. Have you ever been a producer? Not as such, no. Have you ever been um, an editor? Do you want a yes or no answer? Yes, no. <laughs> Have you ever been uh, an actor? Not at this, not to this point in time? No, I haven't. Have you ever been a line producer? Not really, no. And he goes through every possible position in the entertainment industry to which every answer is no or a variation of no. And the last question is, and what is your current position? And the final answer is, I'm the managing director of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was so brilliant. This is fantastic. Um, you, you tell a great plugger story in the in the eulogy. John and sport. Obviously, Farnarkling is kind of seminal to me. I, I was. Yeah. I still remember where I was. I was in my parents' bedroom when Dad played Farnarkling to me as a as a twelve <laughs> year old, and it was pretty much the greatest thing I'd ever heard. Um, yeah. Good evening. A capacity crowd was treated to a display of champagne farnarkling in an exhibition fixture run in Perth on Friday to aid world famine relief. In an all-star engagement, the victorious Australian World Championship side lined up against a composite invitation team from other farnarkling countries. The national side quickly demonstrated its total mastery of the code and pulled out every type of arkle from all parts of the grommet and seemed to have the flukum on a string, particularly when moving forward in defence. The very dexterous Dave Sorensen, who seems to set new standards every time he steps onto the sward, was in inspirational form and the game has never had a better ambassador. He was instrumental in one almost magical arkle just before the umlaut when he knocked one up from well outside the whiff-and-whacker by deflecting the gonad with his foot while being tackled. He was later involved in an unfortunate altercation with a section of wire netting at the southern end of the concourse and it will be tragic indeed if he can't be disengaged in time for the Sportsman of the Year dinner where he's the red-hot favourite to pick up the big one. That love of sport was very real with John. Yeah, but you know, John had that, as the tournament shows, John had that philosophical view of sport which is that it's us at our best and our worst and our, our most ridiculous you know there's a I never I don't know who said this but it's my favorite definition of sport and I I know John would not furiously in agreement which is that sport is for those smart enough to understand the game and dumb enough to think it's important and <laughs> I I think uh I, I mean I remember watching Farnarkling obviously I watched the Gillies report and well, to use the sport metaphor, uh, there are a lot of talented people on that show, but John was like the champion full forward. He was like the plugger of that show. It's like, yeah. get the ball to John. <laughs> Let's see him <laughs> kick the goal. Well, that I think Tony Martin said in his Logies, Logies tribute that, or he tweeted it at least, that he was just always 
the best thing in whatever you were watching. Yeah, totally. In fact, um, I remember interviewing Barry Humphreys and he told a John Clark story. So John's first screen appearance was as a, an extra in a pub scene in The Adventures of Barry McKenzie and he's literally on screen for like all of nine seconds and it's your typical writer's Barry McKenzie scene, Bazaar in London, getting pissed and, and leaving the pub in triumph and all the extras were asked to kind of acclaim Bazaar as he left the room and so everybody uh, chose to go, hey, Bazaar! except for one person, which was John. All John did, and Barry said, you, if you look in the shop, you can see it. All John did was raise his glass and tip one finger up like, good on you, Bazza. It was the most understated moment in an entirely overstated scene. And Barry said, I knew then this was a man to watch. You finish your speech with a, a really beautiful and, and poignant reading. And I think one of the briefs of the night was that everyone had to come armed with something to read. Um, but this reading was particularly important to you. Yeah, well, it wasn't John's words. And uh, again, it was a great example of John's, not just generosity, but his understanding of human nature and human being. So it was when my father died and I got flooded with um, all kinds of you know, beautiful messages from people I knew and some I didn't and some I, I didn't know very well at all, including, interestingly, a really, really lovely and thoughtful letter from Malcolm Turnbull, who was actually a friend of Jennifer's. This is way back before he became the Malcolm we know and, and don't remember today. But um, John didn't send me a message, not from him. He sent me a poem by one of his favourite poets called A.J. Cronin called uh, In His Father's Footsteps, and he just signed it down the bottom from John. And um, it's a poem about the necessity and the difficulty of a son growing apart from his father. It's short and it's beautiful and it was so knowing and um, I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten the gesture. I've never forgotten what it meant to me. And, you know, as I talk now, I feel very emotional. Um, as I said, John was like uh, a father, even though, as I said, I, I didn't spend days and weeks, I didn't work on long projects with John, but he had a, a, a father-like place in my life and certainly uniquely in my career. And I I remember when, um, when I heard the news that Robin Williams had died, and I, I remember being quite devastated not because we'd lost a great talent, but because I thought, oh, no, this was a, a true human being, a great humanist who has lost the fight to be a human. And I, obviously it wasn't the same with John. He, he died suddenly. But I had that same sense of, oh, no, we don't have a lot of great human beings and we've lost a great human being. And that's how I felt as well. I just felt... My, you know, this this was one of the ones, one of my ones, and I'm sure he, he was not, not not personally. He was just one that we enjoyed and was good, and just one of the good things. And, yeah, um, yeah. And, he was a he was a great thing publicly, and he was a he was a good man privately. And um, you know, I miss that. I miss uh, I miss being able to talk to John. Um, John could ground you. 
and again, he was not a man to offer advice or epithets or <laughs> it was just the way he went about things was grounding and the way he thought about things. I think it's a, a really beautiful speech, the structure and the choice of the stories in such a short time to say the things that you wanted to say. Given speak Ola's a bit about the speeches, what was it like delivering it? How You heard it again recently. What do you remember of the night and, and the delivery and, and how it went across? Well, it was a really interesting cross-section of people from the entertainment industry, most of whom I knew, some of whom I hadn't seen in a long time, like Kaz. Um, so that were, it was lovely in that way. It was uh, like John's extended professional family, I guess, and obviously his actual family were there too. And we all went for a big drink afterwards. But I think, um, you know, everybody puts on their game face when you're performing publicly. But I, and maybe I'm projecting, but my sense was that there was a feeling that a huge hole had been torn in our collective universe. Um the room had, was both alive um, with uh, appreciation and laughter at times, of course, and sometimes joy. You know, the singing of Paul and, and the Bull Sisters was very beautiful. But there was those deep silences which were, gee, I've got a tear in my eyes I'm talking about this, Tony. Uh, I'm still surprised at how much it moves me. Um, they were the silences of a collective hurt and a collective loss. Well, I certainly felt that as well. And I'll, I'll never forget that night. Um, and, yeah, um, he he's um, – look, Andrew, I'm, I'm just really grateful that you – shared your memories of John and and the speech and I'm doubly grateful that the Clark family let me interview you about this speech as well so um, I'm, I'm really grateful you've come on the podcast and thanks so much we're going to play the whole speech um, as our speech of the week oh well, thanks Tony I'm, re I'm really grateful you asked it's actually um, there's <laughs> there aren't enough really really good human beings around so it's it's good to remember one and, and remember why he was Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Tony. John Clark would have been 72 years old on the 29th of July, 2020. And to mark the occasion of his birthday, the family announced that there was a donation of eight hectares of land around Rill Inlet on Phillip Island. The donation was made by Helen MacDonald, John's widow, to Trust for Nature, which will preserve the wetland for migratory species. John was a very keen ornithologist and birdwatcher and hiker. Trust for Nature was also the nominated charity on the night of the Wheeler Centre event. If people wanted to donate to support the memory of John Clark, the family named Trust for Nature as the appropriate vehicle. And if you'd still like to make a donation now, you can visit trustfornature.org.au and do just that. 
I played a couple of John Clark clips during the podcast, and if you want to get hold of some John Clark audio yourself, then visit mrjohnclark.com. That's a way of finding John's books, his recordings, and other writings over the course of an amazing career, so mrjohnclark.com. This podcast has a sponsor too. It is Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados. We're in the depth of winter here in Melbourne. We're in the depths of lockdown. But that doesn't stop me and my daughter tucking in to beautiful avocados every day for lunch. The fact that Trina got in contact and recognised that my love for speeches in some way reflects their love of cooking and great produce. Well, it's been a game changer in terms of getting this podcast out. So thank you, Trina. Thank you, Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados. And when you're looking for that perfect salad topper next time you're at the supermarket, make sure that it's the avocado you choose. And you can find out more about Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados at lovemyavocados.com.au and also Love My Avocados on Facebook and Instagram. It's now time to play the speech itself. Andrew Denton's short eulogy to John Clark delivered at the Melbourne Town Hall on the 2nd of July 2017 as part of a Wheeler Centre event, a celebration of John Clark. The full recording of this remarkable night of remembrance is still up online and so chase that down at wheelercentre.com.au. The brief for the night was that people who were significant to John Clark read something, and it actually reflected a night that John Clark himself organised in the early years of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Humorists Read Humorists, where he just wanted to enjoy people choosing pieces that they liked and then reading them out loud. Well, in this case, it was people enjoying what John had written, what John had loved, what John meant to them, and it ended up being a combination of poems, stories, and really a collection of eulogies. And one of those was Andrew Denton's, and it was beautiful, and here it is. John Clark was a master of understatement, perhaps better expressed or never better expressed than his description of golf, a game that he loved and which sometimes loved him in turn. And he once said of it, that's the problem with golf, raise your left eyebrow on the balls and the yarra. <laughs> John had the keenest of eyes, but also the finest of hearing, and his hearing was finely tuned not just to the cant of the powerful, but to the nuance of the punter. My favourite story about Australian barracking came from John, who was at a Collingwood St Kilda match years ago at the G, when Plugger was still playing for St Kilda, and all the action was at the other end. And Plugger was on his own in the goal square, and someone in front of John stood up and called out loudly enough for Plugger to hear, Tony, I'm going for a pie. <laughs> Do you want one? <laughs> that was John. John would hear the little things that make sense of the big things. <laughs> I think it's undisputed that John was the finest satirist of our age, anywhere in the world, in my view. 
His ability over so many years to be both an X-ray machine and a moral compass was unrivalled. But it was the thinking behind that satire that set it apart. Years ago, I read an interview with John where he talked about satire as failing unless it had some kind of positive aspect. He said you had to work out what the problem was and at least try and offer some kind of an answer. And if you look back on John's work, that is there. He tried to cast light, not heat. Yes, there was anger in his work, but never malice. And to me, this was the most remarkable thing, that this man could, for so long, hold so close the red-hot kernel of anger that lies at the heart of satire, but not be burnt or bent out of shape by it, was extraordinary. Plutarch said that he who governs anger governs himself, and it's this I'd like to talk about tonight, about John, in tribute to him. It's, of course, appropriate that we mark his brilliance as an artist in so many fields, but to me, his great brilliance was in the art simply of leading a life. I had the enormous pleasure of working with John's writing partner, Andrew Knight, many years ago, and every now and then we'd stop, and sometimes the conversation would turn to John with great affection, and I remember... Andrew told me a story about when he was very early in his career and anxious and was just starting to write with John. And Andrew was also working at an advertising agency being run by Philip Adams and John Singleton. And yes, that is as awful as it sounds. <laughs> anyway, there was a crisis happening and John's in the boardroom. This is in the days before mobile phones. And uh, somebody comes in and says, oh, Andrew, there's a Mr. Clark on the phone for you. And Andrew says, look, I, I can't. Could you tell him I'll call him back? So the person goes off and comes back in a minute later and says, oh, Mr. Clark says it's very important. So Andrew excuses himself from this crisis meeting, goes to the phone and says, John, what is it? This is not a good time. And John says, look, I'm just downstairs in the car. I need to talk to you. Can you come down? And Andrew goes, all right, I'll, I'll come down, but I'll have to be quick. So he goes down in the lift. John's waiting in his car and Andrew leans in and says, John, what is it? And Andrew holds up a frisbee and says, uh, John holds up a frisbee and says, I reckon now would be a pretty good time to throw a frisbee, don't you? <laughs> so they go off to the park for an hour and throw a frisbee. And <laughs> when Andrew gets back to the crisis meeting, it's still in crisis. It made no difference at all whether he was there or not. <laughs> of all the brilliant, talented people I've ever known or worked with, John is the only one to whom I would give the word wise. I can't tell you... What I mean when I say wise, he didn't give a list of instructions. John lived by example, not by declaration. But there was something about John which gave me enormous comfort because he was the person that I knew who seemed to most have worked out how to go about living life. And just to know that somebody had almost got there was incredibly reassuring. He wasn't perfect. Of course, that was a very good idea. The last perfect person we nailed to a piece of wood. But he was wise, and I deeply treasured that. And I would have to say that uh, I have not felt the loss of a man so deeply since the passing of my own father. And when my father died, along with the many beautiful messages I got, came one from John. John always had the words, only in this case they weren't his words, they were someone else's. It was just this poem by one of his favorite poets, A.J. Cronin, signed at the bottom from John. With the exact length and pace of his father's stride, the son walks. Echoes and intonations of his father's speech are heard when he talks. Once when the table was tall and the chair a wood, he absorbed his father's smile and carefully copied the way that he stood. 
He grew into exile slowly, with pride and remorse, in some ways better than his begetters, in others worse. And now having chosen with strangers, half glad of his choice, he smiles with his father's hesitant smile and speaks with his voice. John Clark knew. John Clark knew human beings. John Clark knew how to live a life. We were bloody privileged to share his, and we're privileged still. Cheers, John. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast, and what an episode, one I won't forget in a hurry. Thank you so much, Andrew Denton, for making the time, for sharing the stories, for being a great encouragement with respect to this speeches project. Andrew's efforts on the assisted dying front have been nation-changing, and if you're interested in the campaign, go to gogentleaustralia.org.au and get involved. Thanks also to John's widow, Helen, and his daughters, Lauren and Lucia. It was wonderful to be able to revisit that astonishing night and that astonishing life. Thank you to the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne for the permission to use the original speech audio. Thank you to Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados and to everyone who continues to support Speakola, sending in speeches, recommending speeches, leaving ratings on iTunes for this podcast. It's Father's Day this week in Australia, and if you wanted to support me in a tricky lockdown time, you can purchase 1989 The Great Grand Final about the Geelong Hawthorne classic of that year. That book is in online stores. Or you could contact me directly, tony at tonywilson.com.au, and I can inscribe a copy to your dad. I've loved all the episodes of this podcast so far, but this one is particularly special. And it's dedicated to the memory of John Clark. And to quote a great man in gumboots, jolly good luck, all the best. I think you'll all agree with me 100% in going along, in concurring in that view, in going along with that particular one. <laughs>